Hello everyone. You are now listening to Let's Talk Trees, a podcast brought to you by Safari Craft with me Angie Chaheneng Tias. In Northern Ghana, some local people are struggling to find decent livelihoods to support themselves and their families. Some are returning to areas designated as protected in search of income generating natural resources. And as a result, activities such as cutting down trees for trade or for the creation of new agricultural fields for charcoal production, hunting of wild animals and grazing have become common practices in this once protected areas. This is triggering conflicts over who can use the land and for what purposes. So we want to know how can these conflicts be resolved and what role can be played by integrated landscape approaches in these conflict resolutions. And going forward, how can the Collins Project contribute? To answer this, we're talking with two guests from the Collins Project. My first guest is Eric Bayala, a researcher working with Collins in the field in Northern Ghana. Hi, Eric. Nice to have you here. Hi, Angie. Happy to be part of these discussions. My second guest is Huria Judy, who is a C4 senior scientist and is also working with Collins with a focus on Northern Ghana. She has a particular interest in gender issues in landscapes, how women's work and rights are intertwined with the landscape and why this is so important. Hello, Huria. Hi, Angie. It's very good to be here. It's very nice to have you back in the podcast. We will um, start our discussion. I will go first to Eric. So first, let's go back to the basics. Can you tell us who have you been meeting with in Northern Ghana and what are they telling you about their lives? Uh, sure. I've been meeting with stakeholders in sometimes remote villages since uh, January 2021. Um, of course, when it became possible again to travel because uh, coronavirus uh, slowed travel before then. And um, I interviewed about 220 people across the six communities in three separate community resource management area uh, known as uh, Kremers. And the interviewees include women, elders, uh, farmers, youths, forest operators, which uh, can include people who collect honey and share nuts, and of course, Fulani um, pastoralists when it was possible. So um, the main question I have been interested in are related to uh, land use, which is where problems most often flare up. The results of uh, these interviews show that many people are not satisfied with crema functioning and natural resource management. But uh, the road problem is the lack of livelihoods which is a, a long-standing issue in this part of the country, in this region of Ghana, because uh, the conditions people are facing there is related to the lack of water to do dry season garden. So they have to stick to uh, the raining season and go where the land is more rich. Also, they need to, to go to the forest like to cut down trees and product charcoal for the livelihood, to go for hunting. So this is the main activities they can do there to, to survive. Thank you, Eric. So maybe just to put it simply, like they don't have choice but to go to the protected areas if they want to have livelihoods and get water and resources to eat and to hunt uh, for animals, for example. Is that right? Yeah, they don't have a lot of choice than to do that. 
That's why they are looking for other kinds of uh, training, other kinds of uh, alternative to be able to not depend on forest. Men and women both, uh, one feels training, possibly better equipment in order to get better yield or to better market their products. I see. All right. Thank you, Eric. We'll go to the next question then. How do integrated landscapes approaches then apply in this context and how can they help in this situation? Yeah, on the ground, I have seen that each group of actors has its own interest and objective to achieve. And this is where integrated landscape approach can, can apply. One of the most important initial steps in, in applying integrated landscape approach is to, to allow the stakeholders to identify their own, uh, their own priorities. And that is what I have been doing up to now with my stakeholders' interviews. I'm talking here about uh, farmers, pastoralists. I'm talking also about uh, young people, uh, women who are there trying to, uh, to get some products from, from the forest. I'm talking also about uh, elders, old people. Uh, but I'm also talking about uh, institutions because uh, there are some NGOs there working uh, to help for conservations private companies who are there to make uh, their business. And there are also uh, the state institutions, the public institutions. So I'm talking about uh, these stakeholders uh, who can uh, create their platform and be able to, to exchange, to discuss, and find uh, a common solution. Uh, in, in the scientific literature, it said that these kinds of approaches, the landscape approaches, should have the potential to address uh, both people livelihoods and conservation concerns, and also should therefore be applicable uh, in the case uh, of uh, Northern Ghana. So I'm now thinking to identify opportunities for the implementation of a landscape approach in, in the landscape governance system of uh, the area of northern Ghana. Okay, speaking of stakeholders, this has been intriguing me since the first time you mentioned it. Can you explain a little um, about Fulani pastoralists? Who are they? Maybe Uriya, Uriya will explain more about it. If not, mm -hmm. Fulani is um, a, a ethnic group that is based mainly in the northern part of Ghana and their main activity is... Um, to take care of cattle and animals. Okay, so um, since Eric mentioned that, Huria, you know more about this Fulani pastoralist, uh, do you mind explain to us? Thank you, Angie, and thank you, uh, Eric. I think the question of pastoralist is, is an important one, and this is not actually a question which is just related to northern Ghana, but it's a, a question for the whole Sahelian region in West Africa. The Fulani pastoralists are um, semi-nomadic uh, livestock herders, which means that they move with the, their animals from, like, uh, northern regions in the Sahel to the southern regions. This is a very, very, very important system, actually, because, as you know, the Sahelian region is a, a very dry region, and there is a high variability in terms of rain, in terms of resources, fodder resources. So those people have 
developed a very, very adapted system to the local conditions so that they can take advantage from this climate variability and they move from uh, places where maybe there is a drought to a place where there is rain and there is fodder. And they have a very complex traditional system, how they manage, you know, the knowledge about where is the rain. And then they have a very, very strong institutional system also because they have to create relationships with the people wherever they move in. And this relationship was actually one of the strongest institutions in, in West Africa because people had a certain reciprocity. So they come with their animals, they give you organic matter as a farmer to your fields, and you get the fodder. But what happens is that this relationship, and this now we go back actually to the land use changes Eric was mentioning, is that with the intensification of agriculture, for instance, the cotton culture, uh, there is a huge uh, cotton belt in going from Burkina Faso to Mali. Those people get kind of marginalized because the access to the fodder they had before is not anymore there. And the institutions they build with a farmer were completely weakened. So this is what created the conflict in the first uh, in the first um, uh, stage, actually. And then the climate change making this more difficult because there is less and less and less fodder they can get access to because also the patterns of the rain are changing and their local knowledge is not yet adapted there to this new pattern of viability. And then the third maybe factor was actually the post-colonial uh, boundaries because those people, they have a completely different landscape they were moving in, but then suddenly you had a boundary between Ghana and Burkina Faso, which was actually not there in the past and they had to deal with that. So now we have this fragmentation of this traditional system and then you have people who are in Ghana, Fulani pastorists in Ghana, in Burkina, and, and they are trying kind of to figure out, you know, and to create a new pattern of how they can get citizenship and how can they get used to uh, access to resources. So sorry for being so long, but I think this is very important to understand also from the landscape approach perspective that actually this institution, these kind of platforms, we call them platforms now, they actually did exist in the past. Transcendent and uh, nomadic, semi-nomadic herders are very, are very common in in many countries in in Africa, like the Maasai, for instance, or or the the Tuareg in the northern of Mali. People had this kind of um, venues where they negotiated the access, they negotiated the rights, they negotiated, you know, the responsibilities. And now this is not anymore there. And that's why we think that thinking about how to bring this kind of knowledge or maybe this kind of tradition, not kind of reviving this tradition, which was there and which disappeared. Of course, we cannot go to the back to the past, but I just want to say that the landscape approach is not something that just coming from you know top-down scientists wanting to bring something in, but they are local institutions and venues where people used to have this kind of approaches we are now trying to, to revive it. Thank you. Thank you, Horia. Very interesting. Um, so because there are there are similar uh, communities across Africa, this works in many different contexts and in many different places. So thank you for that.
we can uh, talk more about that. But now I have to go to the question number three, uh, still to you, Huria. So the question is, uh, what is happening with gender rights and women livelihoods in northern Ghana and how this um, intertwine with the landscape, especially uh, in the forest? Uh, thank you, Angie. In northern Ghana, actually, and in, in most other parts of the Sahel, uh, there is a very interesting kind of um, different gender domains, we call them, which means there are different parts and responsibilities in the landscape who are gendered. Uh, one of the most important, maybe, is uh, in, in this context, is the Shia tree. The Shia tree in, in the Sahel is a tree which actually uh, is called in Burkina Faso, Eric, right? It's called like the woman's gold. Uh, because women actually have access, they they manage the trees. They, the trees maybe are, you know, sometimes they belong to the household uh, head, to a man. But what we can say is that the management of the income coming from this tree goes to women, which makes them very, very uh, special and very interesting because we know that the income, which is, generated there will go directly to the hands of women. And this income studies are showing this is between 30 to 40 percent of women's income. And uh, the number of women actually who are living and using uh, this income is very high. It's like 16 million in the, in the West African drylands. And it's about just in Northern Ghana, this is a half million of women almost, who are uh, making a living from those trees. So here we see also the linkages between, you know, traditional systems of the customary right, giving women the right to use these trees. And then now we can link to what happens then when there are changes in the landscape happening and what does this mean for, uh, for women? Because even if women have the right to use the trees, they don't have the right to make decisions over land where these trees are standing. This is one thing. The second thing is also that, you know, making Shia, uh, Shia butter or just collecting the nuts, this is a really, really, really uh, hard work, uh, as a ha ha really hard work. So when we see the kind of work women are doing and then we we see how much they are earning from this business. It's actually very, very difficult to understand like how so much work is happening there, but women are still not making uh, the gain uh, out and, and the benefit out of it. And uh, also a lot of women we talk to are actually, it's just like for subsistence. So they sell the, the nuts, and they use the money for schooling, for education, for health, uh, and also to buy food when there is a, a food shortage, which makes them very important. But at the same time, most of them, they are saying, but we cannot build a business because what we earn is just to, you know, to eat. It's just to eat, feed our kids, send them to the school and make sure that if we have health issues, we can, we can pay for that. So most of them, they stay in this, you know, subsistence uh, kind of model and they don't, you know, make a big benefit or they cannot invest in, in more, you know, activities to and more, uh, more gain. 
Thank you, Horia. So uh, what should be done then um, to help them gain more rights? And what are the implications if we have more supports for gender and other forms of rights? So, I mean, going back now to the landscape approach, and how can landscape approach actually uh, help to, to kind of improve women's access and women's rights? I think one very important issue is that to bring the women on the table. We are uh, seeing that um, that women, most of the time when decision-making is made, women are not part of this decision-making. So the fact that the landscape approach has, you know, the principle of the landscape approach is to bring everyone at the table and make sure that the voice of everyone is heard will already help to kind of bring the women's interest on the table. And women's interest is the Shia tree. Uh, the second thing I think is, is very important is that to create ways for women to um, also discuss their right with the private sector, because here we have a really, it's like we have a really uh, change which really needs to happen because the, the, the whole system the whole system of the production is actually not well organized. And so it is very difficult for women to negotiate their rights and to make sure that they get the income and they get the, the, the livelihood they need from, from this. And then bringing, you know, different civil society organizations and bringing different private sector companies working in the region uh, might help actually to create a venue for this very, very important and needed change. Okay, it's it's wonderful to hear the story about Shia, and it's really interesting to see how this works for the producers. Uriah, thank you. Uh, can you also bring more examples in this context, perhaps? Uh, yes, Angie, I can. We are talking here about a multi-million business, and uh, I think there is a lot of, you know, possibilities, I, I see a lot of possibilities how we can improve uh, the, the situation of women that they, you know, improve their lives. But one actually very interesting example about that, I mean, which shows also the complexity of the issues we are dealing with. And the example I wanted to give actually is uh, when we looked at the at the use of the, of the Shia uh, tree in northern Ghana, we found that actually a lot of those trees are cut to make charcoal. And uh, we wanted to understand a little bit more because we wanted to understand how can this happen that you have a tree when it is alive, it gives you it gives you actually uh, income and life and livelihood, but then this tree is cut. It's like cutting your own resources. So we wanted to, to understand that what we figured out actually was that it is not really acceptable to cut the tree, even you know, in the perception of local people. But what happens is you have a lot of young people in northern Ghana who, for different reasons, don't have a livelihood. And it's very difficult for them, specifically uh, during the dry season, to have an activity where they can live. Many of them don't have also access to land because of the inheritance system uh, in northern Ghana and also just the lack of, of enough resources. So what they they do, what is, I mean, left them for them to get their livelihood is two possibilities. 
they migrate and they go to the cities or they they find resources to make money in the landscape. And one of them is to cut trees to make charcoal because this is an activity, you know, you can you can do like you, you know, anytime you want, anytime you need money, you just go cut trees and produce charcoal and sell it because this is a very, very um, uh, lucrative uh, business and the charcoal goes then to Accra and sometimes also outside the country, it goes to Burkina Faso even. So you are sure that you are going to sell your charcoal. The problem we see here, and this is really interesting for us, is to see like how two pathways of marginalization cross each other and produce even more uh, unsustainable pattern. Like we see women are dependent from the trees, but the young people are also dependent from the charcoal if they don't have any other opportunities to work. And now what happens is that with their activities, they are actually impacting women's life and the life of the entire community. So what can landscape approach do here? And this is actually one of the, the interesting uh, thing is that to bring again the interest and also the issues, it's not you know about blaming young people because they are cutting trees or blaming anyone, but it's about what are the, the root causes of these issues and then bring them on the table and discuss for possible common solutions. And we had good experiences actually when we uh, we did a lot of, uh, in the previous time in, in Northern Ghana, a lot of, of workshops where in one hand we empower women to be able to talk about how important is this tree, not only for them, but for the entire community, to be aware about their rights, to get collective connections with other women and build, you know, kind of um, a plaidoyer for this tree. And on the other hand, discuss with, you know, other actors, what are the possibilities, what are the, the, the opportunities young people uh, can have that they don't need to cut the trees, which is actually the tree of life in their own landscape. Thank you, Huria. It gives us a very um, nice understanding about the complex situation about livelihood in um, Ghana. So I will now just ask Eric, uh, perhaps Eric, do you have anything to add to this? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Angie. I would like to add just a, a small thing I, I've noticed in the ground related to um, uh, to Shia and women uh, well-being. Uriya was saying that Shia tree is um, gold of women yeah the sheer nuts but what i realize is that even young people now have started collecting these sheer nuts and go and sell with uh, private companies to make money because they don't have uh, other opportunities so they have made it difficult now it became a challenge for women to really improve um, their livelihoods they were saying that uh, uh, sometimes they have to fight with uh, young people um, over uh, the nuts collection. So um, I think this is the kind of change now we start seeing in the ground. At first, it was only women that go and collect share nuts and do the, the, the business. This is uh, the small difficult I wanted to add. 
uh, this difficulty related to, to women. And uh, coming back to your question, I can say that um, in northern Ghana, as Uria was saying, some people are cutting down trees for the creation of a new agriculture field. And now uh, activities such as charcoal production and hunting of wild animal grazing have become common practices in the protected uh, areas. But many also want to learn other skills to earn a living without exploiting the forest. For instance, um, the dry season gardening has been discussed a lot, uh, but the problem of uh, water availability constitutes a big constraint there. So they, they, they can't do anything uh, without this water. So uh, they spoke a lot of uh, the need to get uh, dams there to be able to work even if it's not uh, the raining season. Also, um, training in trades such as welding, uh, carpentry, and uh, tree uh, nursery attract a lot of interest uh, in this part of the, the country. Uh, young people have talked about uh, public service jobs uh, such as uh, forest guards, firefighters, and are curious to learn if training and employment protecting their own environment uh, could be possible. Some want training to improve their skills for a better yield without uh, degrading uh, the nature, uh, including training in modern techniques uh, with better equipment. For men, uh, this particularly uh, apply in agriculture, honey production, and livestock. But for women, agriculture is also important, has is a share butter production, uh, like we were saying, uh, soap making, and production of uh, food flavoring ingredients, like dawa dawa, made from uh, locust beans. Thank you, Eric. Uh, just a question to wrap up this uh, discussion. What needs to be done in order to overcome this kind of conflict? If there are two communities or two groups uh, fighting over same livelihood options or uh, landscape, this is for both Huria and Eric. Yeah, uh, I I can just say that uh, improving um, the conditions of people is the the best way also uh, to avoid some conflicts, but also uh, if they are able to sometimes, uh, if they are able to meet and discuss their own interests and classify their priorities, this can help also uh, to avoid uh, this kind of conflict because they, they don't really discuss, they don't really know um, the interests of uh, each other. So this is the whole interest of a landscape approach that could allow all stakeholders uh, to, to come together in a common platform to discuss these kinds of difficulties and agree on some options of alternatives. And uh, yeah, I think that could help to achieve uh, development and conservation um, yeah, opportunities. Thank you, Eric. Huria? I am just thinking that actually, you know, we cannot say this is what you should do because we are scientists, we are not practitioners. What we need is, yeah. I think the most important thing is to look for diversification because if you have people fighting over one resources, then it means that you need to diversify and the diversification can be based on, on natural resources like green jobs or 
or others, but it can be also, as Eric was saying, building capacity to people to get out of the of the dependency on natural resources because a landscape cannot feed everyone. So we need a diversified approach that we figure out how much people can live from the landscape and how many people uh, will have other opportunities based on other assets and uh, maybe not specifically dependent on natural resources. Uh, I would maybe just wrap up by saying that, because this is one, one aspect we discussed a lot in, in the project, the two examples, the pastoralist and the, the woman and, and the youth, shows how important actually is that the landscape approach is strongly linked to the right-based approaches. And I think this is something we are really, very keen to look at in this project and to see how to, to make, you know, these aspects, this right aspect and the right and access to resources and the empowerment of, of uh, local actors also to negotiate with, you know, powerful actors like the private sector and others, how important this is to make, you know, uh, the, the change people uh, are needing. Thank you, Horia and Eric. It was, this is a very um, eye-opening and interesting discussion. Um, touching many issues from livelihoods to people migration in Africa. I hope our listeners enjoy it. So again, thank you very much for being in the podcast, Eric and Huria. I hope everyone stay safe and thank you for listening. See you again on the next episode.